listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for, from Monday the 5th of June to Friday the 9th of June. Uh, this week, our bugman Simon Hinkley was back in the building, which is very exciting. He talked to us about the Bombardier Beetle, which has a butt. That explodes. And what a beetle it is. And then we caught up with food writer Larissa Jubetsky. She told us all about being a restaurant critic and what that involves. And then we chatted about local celebrities in your area. And lots of people called in with all sorts of wizards seem to feature, wizards feature quite prominently. everywhere. Uh, Dr. Jen came in to talk about uh, if there was any evidence that strange things happen on a full moon. And I'd, I'd say this is one of the most controversial <laughs> segments. <laughs> because uh, apparently there is no scientific evidence, but people were livid about that. Uh, and also uh, we had a bit of a chat about what we do in a blackout and you know, I just say that no one wants to be in a blackout with Jeff Sparrow. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R. The Emerging Writers Festival is coming up very soon. It's starting on the 14th of June, in fact. Among the many events under the umbrella of that festival, you can enjoy a five-course dinner at Ricky and Pinky at Builders Arm Hotel while you hear some of the industry's best food writers discussing their craft. One of the participants is Larissa Jubetsky, one of the country's preeminent food writers and restaurant critics. She's joining us in the studio now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Being a restaurant critic, a food writer, sounds like an absolute dream job. Is it as good as it sounds? It's hell on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. My mum always describes it as a five kilogram job. So, you know, that is is the first problem. Uh, but yeah, look, it's it's a funny one because everyone thinks it's the dream job, but it, it and it is wonderful if you're a food critic and you whinge about having to go out to dinner and get paid for it, then mm. you really have a problem and you need to <laughs> retrain and find a new profession. But it is it is work. It does boil down to work. So it is you know it's it's stressful because every everybody else out there these days is a critic as well. So everything that I can sign to paper or to online these days, you know, it's like don't read the comments because it can be pretty vicious because everybody has their own opinion about food. Mm. What what are the main skills you require? I mean, do you have to be a good cook yourself or have some kitchen training or is it Oh, you need to know your way around a spatula. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't say that I'm a great cook, which is, I I think a lot of food critics are really great cooks and they're obsessed with it and they'll go and make their own black pudding and maybe that's, I'm more of a glutton than a cook myself. (laughs) So my, my, my partner is a brilliant cook, so I tend to leave it up to him and I'm a really good spaghetti bolognese chef um, <laughs> but yeah it's I, I, it's like saying well you don't you don't have to be a carpenter to say if a table is wobbly so I'm pretty good at picking food apart rather than putting it together myself what's your palate like how do you it's a much food like growing up was there food that you didn't like to eat and now you have to eat it and even if you don't like it oh uh, that's the thing I like everything and mm. I think you do when you're a critic you have to well yeah. if not like you have to appreciate everything mm. so I've gone from the pickiest eater in the world who you know when when I was a child I wasn't brought up in a food family at all my, my mother's famous pineapple curry chicken was the epitome <laughs> of gastronomy out in Rosanna um, <laughs> 
sorry, Mum. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just developed over time. And I was a vegetarian yeah. for 14 years. until really? I was Until I was 28 years old, I was a hardcore vego, bordering onto vegan. So, yeah, yeah I've come a long way. Yeah. What changed? Did you have to become, did you have to start eating meat for your well, job? Well, no, that, that the eating meat came and then the, the food writing came along really quickly. So I just broke one day. My, my partner was eating a meat lasagna and all of a sudden, after 14 years of preaching to people, I just went, oh, my God, that looks good. Wow. So, yeah, and I never really looked back. And then I started working at The Age and I got a few gigs on the Good Food Guide, which comes out every year. So they mm-hmm. gave me, you know, the baby restaurants to do, the entry level, and they liked my stuff. And so I just kept snowballing and here I am today. In our food writing, <laughs> you are. Uh, is there kind of trends that emerge? Because I write about music for a living as well. And then there's kind of, you know, people who write gonzo style and people who write, you know, personal first-person um, experiences. Is there kind of styles and trends writing that trends. emerge in yeah. your writing? Yeah. yeah, well, it's funny because food writers, we all, I think we all pretend that we don't look at each other's stuff, but then the, the certain phrases start popping up here and there. For example, at the moment, you have to describe something as a unicorn. If it's the, the epitome of something, for example, um, if it's the unicorn seafood platter, it's the you know, the best, oh, the one wow. that's come out of nowhere and just blasted you away. So, and I've noticed everyone is using unicorn. <laughs> so they're just little words and phrases. And then you've got these iconic writers like Adrian Gill, who sadly died in January. Um, and he, writers like that really changed it because food writing used to be, I went to a restaurant with my lovely wife, we ate the chicken. Mm-hmm. I thought it was excessively salty, but she, yeah. <laughs> she loved it. And, and, and people like Gill changed it into just this, hoary, crazy, metaphor-soaked area of just pure brilliant writing. And now, you know, for example, Jonathan Gold um, in LA, he won a Pulitzer for his food writing. So it's really broken out of the box to become a form of entertainment rather than merely advising people where to go and eat their dinner. How, how much power do food writers have these days? I mean, has things like Yelp changed the situation? Are people paying more attention to, you know, the, uh, the online stuff than they are to... The hive mind. Yes. I think you're an idiot <laughs> if you rely on Yelp or Zomato for deciding where to go. Um, it's they're, they're just so biased and, you know, restaurant owners just pepper them with favourable... Um, reviews, But I, I think at the same time, the power of the traditional newspaper critic has really waned. You can't close down a restaurant anymore, try as you might. Um, there are very few people in the world who can close a restaurant. So it's it's all just part of the, the big game as far as I'm concerned. I try to give an honest opinion, but it, at the same time, you're sort of thinking, how relevant is this to the average person? Uh, Melbourne loves a fad food whether it be a cronut or a deconstructed coffee. Are you into these fads when they come in? Do they excite you? Do you get on board? Or do you think they're a bit of a, ugh, got to, you know, let it be? I I tend to roll my eyes and, and, you know, keep swiping on my Instagram feed. But... Yeah, the latest one is, uh, what is it, filled croissants. I forget what cute name they're calling them, but oh. you fill your croissant with, with matcha or salted caramel and you Instagram it and get really excited. Freak shakes are totally out. <laughs> you don't want to freak shakes freak shake. were, 12 months of freak shakes, yeah. totally. <laughs> uh, you've also done a bit of TV stuff. You're a judge on Iron Chef. You're on MasterChef. Yep. What's impact do you think the, the huge boom in TV food shows has had on food writing? Oh, it's, it's enormous. I, I began as the Ages food critic when at exactly the same time that MasterChef Australia debuted and we noticed just the numbers of people 
becoming absolutely fascinated by cooking. Um, the, I mean, the, the, the TV numbers, the TV audience numbers are just huge on that and they still are. And it really has coincided with just your everyday person becoming incredibly interested in food and cooking at home, which I think is a really great thing. But it also it means why everybody's a critic and you've got a gazillion food bloggers out there and Yelp and Zomato exist. So, yeah, it's a bit of good and bad. A few years ago, uh, there was a case in Sydney of a food reviewer getting sued. I think it was successfully sued as well yes. uh, for defamation. Did that change anything about the industry or the way that you approached your No, work? we all have to be incredibly careful in Australia. Um, our defamation laws are so strict um, that, yeah, Matt, Matt Evans, who, who the, that, that case was brought against from the Sydney Morning Herald, he was very unlucky. Um, but, yeah, for example, we always look at to English reviewers such as Gill and Jay Rayner and they get to write the most wonderful invective because their defamation laws are a lot softer. Mm. Um, so A.A. A. Gill, um, he wrote something like, uh, the baby back ribs look like the evidence from a war crimes trial. Oh, now, we, we could never, ever get away with such a thing without having a massive lawsuit. <laughs> so, unless, unless you could prove it as yeah. factual accuracy. Um, so, yeah, th- that case didn't change anything. But, yeah, unfortunately, I'd love to see Australia's defamation laws really loosened up. And at this uh, at this Emerging Writers Festival event, I'm going to tell everybody, let's pretend that we live in a, a defamation-free zone and just go for it. Oh, I like that. Oh, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> and do you have to book tables under fake names? I mean, is that is, is that the way? Yes, yes, okay, always so- a fake name. And these days I've taken to using fake phone numbers because restaurants will store numbers. <gasps> so all of my friends friends are constantly being rung by restaurants saying, can we confirm that table? And they know just to say yes. Wow. And do they know, but do they recognise you as soon as you walk in? Generally, yes. Yeah. Sometimes they don't, which is really lovely. That's a unicorn moment. Um, <laughs> but usually they clock it the minute you walk in. Do you reckon that Australia has a signature dish? Because we've evolved so much from, like you were saying, your mum's cooking, which I'm sure was lovely, to where we are now, this kind of multicultural society. But we don't seem to really have a, our own food, even though you often see mm. things described as modern Australian. What do you think our, our national dish is right I, now? I decided this a few years ago. I think our national dish is salt and pepper calamari. Because wow, we're, we're an Asian, we're an Asian country now and everyone loves salt and pepper calamari. It's on mm, every pub yeah. menu across the land. So, yeah, I, I really definitely would argue for that. I like it's better than Lamington, so it's good. <laughs> uh, this is an event at the Emerging Writers Festival. What will you be telling the emerging writers about the state of the industry? I mean, is there much work for food writers? Is it a good field to, to get into? Uh, I'd be saying don't do it because I don't want the competition. <laughs> but, um, look, I, I think as far as it being a career, that's a very rare thing and a lucky thing. Um, I, I think... To go into food writing, it should be something that you simply enjoy for the sake of it rather than thinking that you're going to parlay it somehow into a money-making enterprise. Mm. So, yeah, do it for the sheer love of putting words on paper. Okay, and what's going to be happening on the night? There's five-course dinner at the Builder's Arms. At Ricky and Pinky, the, the, the Canto Sichuan restaurant from Andrew McConnell. Um, so, yeah, so we'll be eating five courses and just chatting about it 
during, I guess. I haven't really thought much more than that. Hopefully there will be alcohol involved. Uh, hopefully there will be some salt and pepper calamari. It sounds, it sounds awesome. Um, so people can check that on the Emerging Writers Festival website. I do believe it's sold out and there's now a waiting list. There's a waiting list, yes. Yes, but it does sound like a terrific event as part of the Emerging Writers Festival. You can hear, um, you can get a five-course meal and you can hear, amongst other people, Larissa Jubetsky, who's been our guest this morning. Thanks so much. Much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Three R. You are listening to Breakfasters here on a Triple R with Sarah Jeff and Geraldine. All right, here's the thing. Here's here's a question. Power's gone out. You have no battery left on your phone. You have no battery left on your computer. It's dark, mm-hmm. but too early to go to bed. Mm-hmm. What do you do? What do you do? Okay, can you remember the mass blackout, Brunswick Northcote blackout that yes. happened a couple of years mm. ago? Mm-hmm. This was a situation for many because it happened in the evening. I hadn't ch- recharged my phone, so my phone was in its dying stages and we didn't have laptops accessible for some reason. And I don't know if you can remember that time, but I re- was home with a housemate and at this point, we discovered that our next door neighbour was an opera singer because we had never heard her sing before. What did she do in a blackout? Sing. Sing. By herself. And so we sat there listening to our next door neighbour singing operatically. And then we lit some candles and considered doing a seance, but then thought that would be creepy and decided yes. instead just to have a bit of a DM. And we realised suddenly that in the darkness, in complete darkness, under candlelight, you divulge a lot of things about yourself. There's something about conversations that happen in semi-darkness, in a blackout, with no distractions, that become more truthful than you probably intended them oh, to yeah. be. Because it, it's like this atmosphere of crisis. Yes. Civilization's coming to an end. And I thought you just said atmosphere of Christ. And I thought, yes, maybe it was a Catholic in me that was <laughs> yeah, repenting the, in the, the darkness. The power going out. Yeah. Preliminary to the second coming. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm just an oh, – that's what I do. I'm going to sit down, light a candle and just have it. And even if I don't know you very well, like let's just sit in this room and talk it out because uh, when the lights come on, it doesn't count. I oh. do feel it's like the time when you realise that you don't have any proper preparations. Yeah, I'm oh, thinking totally, the same thing. Yeah. I don't have any candles. Where oh, are the candles? Candles are, Everyone has candles now, mate. The end, they smell nice. Everyone has candles. Yeah, but there's candles like this. You scented candles, but they're not like your emergency. Yeah. So you like you scented candles. It's not like you're like I can't use them because it's no, not emergency. You know, some people would be very prepared. Would have like your disaster pack, which would have a transistor radio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're getting a call come through. So we see if oh, this is someone yeah. who wants what, to tell us about their blackout experience. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Hello, you're on Triple R. Hey, Don. Have you had uh, going outside and looking at the stars yet? Oh, no. That's a really nice thing to do. If the streetlights are out, it's good to do that. Oh, that's actually a good advice. If the streetlights are out, it's also good to go and do a bit of graffiti. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Under the stars. Yeah. Spice the place up a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks, mate. Bye. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> bit of graffiti, bit of old legal graffiti. Just places yeah. where you're definitely not encouraging people to... I, um, maybe we are, I don't know. Do, do you remember um, the earthquake? Which one? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, yes, I do. How can I forget one bottle fell off our bench? <laughs> 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 we thought there was a ghost in the house and then it turns out there was an earthquake. I can remember sitting there and feeling the whole building 
just twitching about and then think, oh, they're playing some loud music next. My store must be vibrating through, through, and then all across social media was this the great disaster of 2016. Yeah, well, that was I, funny. I remember at blackouts as a kid, and it was always a completely different totally. to what it is now. And a lot more exciting when you were a kid, but I think mm. we had less electrical goods as well, right? Yeah. It was a simpler time. Yes. It was a simpler time. You didn't have your, your mobiles or your things like that. But I have very vivid memories of one in particular. Yes. Um, where, uh, so I was watching Disney. Oh, yes. And it was. Do you um, know what movie it was? Yeah, it was Pinocchio. Oh. And it was, because that's the one where he um, goes inside the whale. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. He gets, yeah, the little boy. So whale, at, yeah. at, at that exact point, um, he went went inside the whale, right? And then and then that's when the blackout happened. No. And I was like, what is happening? And then the whole time I'm thinking, surely it'll be fine. It'll come, when the power comes back on, it'll start from the same same point, and of course, <laughs> when the power came back on, it was it finished well oh, hours ago. Oh, because it was the TV back yeah, then, not it was Netflix. The TV, and I just went, I was so angry at the TV station because I'm like, <laughs> they knew, they knew they don't care about the kids, they don't care about us and what we want to watch. What about us? And you know, no one cares about the news. No one cares. Put it back. I want to know what happened when they went inside the whale. That is what it's like when it's a kid, isn't it? I do remember. Paul and yeah. Pinocchio, we never find out whether he got out or not. I think his nose grew right. That's it. Did it like puncture the whale Maybe it from killed within? the whale, speared the I'll, whale I'll, on the inside. I'll never know. That would be kind I'll of never like know. a violent turn. Wouldn't it? I feel like when you're a kid too, at least with me, whenever those things happen, I always kind of extrapolated in my mind to it was going to be this enormous adventure. Yeah, Like maybe totally. it would never come back on. You know, like yeah. maybe we were never going to have electricity anymore and we'd have to like live like primitives in tribes. We'd have to well, cook on fires. Yeah, would, yeah, that's right. We'd be skinning the cats and cooking them on fires. Like, <laughs> skinning post- cats? <laughs> you know, it's kind of post- well, I thought it was far Why do you have to skin the cats? <laughs> To breakfast is on Triple R. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> just, we're all just staring off into the distance. <laughs> oh, I had a magic blanket on what we were doing. <laughs> Who am I? Where are we? Yeah. What are we doing? Am I asleep? Oh, wait, is it the news? No, no. We've done that. <laughs> this is my time to shine. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. 
uh, yeah, we we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, uh, local celebrities. Um, so, uh, do you, like, I, I'm interested in hearing about um, if you've got a a celebrity from your local hometown, perhaps, or even where you live now. Um, if uh, so, it, basically, I'll go back to to Aubrey, where I grew up. Um, and I'm not talking celebrities that have grew up there and have since left. Aubrey has many big celebrities. Does it? Yeah. Geraldine Hickey. Geraldine Hickey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Lisa Mitchell. Richard Roxburgh. Wow. That's a good one. Uh, Morgan Coon. Uh, Lauren Jackson. Uh, so this but you're not talking about famous people who left. You're talking about people that you are still big in town. Yeah, the, celeb- the local celebrities. Like, yeah. Like you right. might see them in office works. Yes. Yeah, but I think like not just do they have to be famous people or are they just people that people that everyone in the town that they're very well known in in the town but not necessarily outside that town. Ah, I see. So in in Albury it is local DJ Steve Bowen. <laughs> oh. And what does Steve Bowen do? He's a DJ. What uh, what does he DJ? Weddings, parties, anything. <laughs> <laughs> 21st, but he is the DJ that you want. Now, if anyone, now I'm sure there are listeners here who grew up in Albury, just send us a text and verify that Steve Bowen is a local celebrity. Nine three, uh, no, that's our that's our number to call. It's zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven. Steve Bowen is our local celebrity, and he uh, has been. The D- go-to DJ in Albury for the last 30 years, I'd say. Nearly. 30 years? I'm just getting it. Wow. At oh. least 25. Did he for, DJ your 21st or 18th? Uh, he DJed my sister's wedding. Uh, oh. And it was always a bit uh, It's like an empire. So he has <coughs> Steve Bowen DJs. And, you know, you could get an apprenticeship with him. Wow. Yeah, so you could, so it wasn't just him that would DJ. So you'd order a DJ for your 21st oh. and you didn't know whether you were going to get, get Steve, Steve Bowen or not. You might get Steve or you might get one of the yeah. up-and-comers. Yeah, or you might – he had – all the DJs were very good. But Steve Bowen, he had really long, blonde, curly hair and he'd, you know, he was he was, he was was a party man. He loved it. Yeah, he played good tunes. Oh, wow. He was great. I love And then this. he worked at the local radio station and stuff as well. Is he, and he's still there, still DJing? Mate, still DJing. As far as I know, last time I was, yeah, I still remember seeing him around the traps when I was there not too long ago. Just yeah. I'd be devastated if he wasn't. But you know, you went to make happy day. Boom! There he is serving you a. Also, oh, he was he was that much of a celebrity that he'd yeah. be a celebrity at McHa- McHappy is, Day. I don't, I don't think there would be anyone in Aubrey that wouldn't know who Steve Bowen is. That is amazing. I I thought when you said um, local celebrities, you meant people who are kind of like D grade celebrities that happen to live in your area. <laughs> yep, love that uh, too. Well, there isn't. I can't couldn't really think of any for Coburg, but I do know that I was at Budding's in Coburg. Uh, when I first went to Bunnings and Coburg and I walked out, I noticed there's this tiny little plaque when you walk out. It's really small. And I just happened to turn my head and look at it at that moment. Mm. It declares that Anthony Kudafitis opened the Kuda. Bunnings Coburg how many years ago. And I was like, I love that. I love that there was a – I don't even think it was a footballer when it was opened. I love that, like, Bunnings were like, who who can we get to come to Coburg to open our to open this place? Is Anthony Kudafitis. Is Kuda from oh, – I have from no idea. There? It's just this little, and that it's worthy of a plaque as <laughs> well. Yeah, plaque and funny. Well, maybe. <laughs> Chess, I love it. Chances are he could have re- 
requested that plaque. Yes, yeah, yeah I'll, <laughs> I'll come and do it, but you have to make me a plaque. Uh, well, I live not too far away from Culture Kings in Melbourne, which is like a big streetwear store where there is. Um, they're always having these in-store appearances. I think oh, Ronaldo is yes. there. Ah. Local hip hop acts will will come in. Nice. And there's always like this huge queue of young people. Mm. Very young people stretching for miles up the thing, and so invariably, I try and ask them who is appearing. Yeah, invariably, they tell me it's some some R and B star that I have absolutely <laughs> no idea, no idea um, who. And they then, are. do you get in line? Yeah, I feel like, <laughs> it. Well, yeah, get a, but, but I always kind of feel like, well, do these people actually want to go there? Like, if you're some New York R and B star, like presumably you can buy all the branded caps and. Yeah. You know, stuff in New York and get them better than the ones in Melbourne, surely. I maybe. don't know, maybe. Maybe. Do you think that they'd get paid to be there or not? Yeah, or do you I think it's one of those or is it part of a publicity thing? I don't thing? know. I just, you know, Justin Bieber was there. Oh. You know, um, I kind of feel like, is this like the worst thing that they have to do, do you reckon? Like or, when you're on tour, like, you know, you just go and hang out in some store. With or do friends. they actually want to go there? I don't know. Maybe they like it because it's their time to look down with fans. Yeah, like, right. I'm, yeah. I'm a man of the people. Well, maybe is it really overcrowded? Do they get space to walk around and stuff? Well, they, sometimes, sometimes, like there really are literally like how do they know like, that they're queues there? of people for like four blocks? Wow, uh, I do remember. Um, can you remember that because Jeffrey Jeffrey Rush also this is like, this is a legit celebrity, but Jeffrey Rush lives near Camberwell. And if you ever went to Camberwell Sunday markets, King. and Camberwell in like the late nineties, Jeffrey Rush would just be wandering around, just popping into. Just popping into the bakery, getting his loaf of bread. Yeah, I saw like, him, but uh, no one ever said anything to him. No, because he's always like, yeah. You, know, you don't. Anyway, um, oh, we have uh, a couple of texts. Here we go. It's uh, from a friend uh, who grew up in Chilton, went to high school in Wodonga, and Steve Bowen was the DJ at every one of our high school formals and grads. It's true. He wore a different, bright, and ridiculous suit at every one of them. That's right. He used to wear these different coloured oh, suits. Oh. Party suits. Oh. Like suit suits. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I've got a question. I'm sorry, there's someone here. There's two people who have texted us with the exact same celebrity, local celebrity, Bobby oh, Desi, yes. the local wizard of Belgrave. Apparently what? he's a staff-wielding, eyepatch-wearing wizard from Belgrave that everyone in the Dandy Dan yeah, knows. Yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him before. Thanks, yeah. Liam. Oh, There's yes, two people yeah. who texted us with that. I know it's exactly the who they're talking thing, yeah. about as well. Yeah. Yeah, yes, I, no, I think I do too. I've got a question for you, though. You see Jeffrey Rush and he's at the local market. Yes. Do you, and like you're interacting with him, do you let let on that you know who he is or do you pretend that well, you don't? Well, why are you interacting with him in the first well, place? Well, my friend well, used to work at... The Brumbies, and he used to come in and get his like yeah, loaf so of like bread you're or whatever. Yeah, so selling in the bread at the Brumbies. Yeah. Do you say hi, Jeffrey, or do you just pretend he's just an ordinary? Well, she said that for ages. She just would, you know, would. I, and I used to work at a service station as well, and I used to have semi-famous people coming mm. all the time. A couple of footballers, a <laughs> couple of politicians, and I just always played it really cool. I'd just be like, yeah, "Hey, if anything, I was a little bit more hey. not yeah. too Like, yeah, what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> okay." <laughs> Which I feel like maybe, maybe I'll sell to you, maybe yeah. I won't. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Uh, but my friend who worked at Brumby said that once she uh, had Jeffrey Wash came in, she'd been serving him like every Sunday for ages, and then she just one day went, "I was going to let you know that like I'm a really big fan of Shine." Uh, no, no, what was the what was the movie he was in the what, David Helfcott film? Was that yeah, Shine? Shine? Yeah, it was yeah, Shine. Yeah. Of Shine. 
And he, he was really lovely about it. He said, oh, I don't think that's my best film, uh, but thank oh. you very much. And then, and then left. And she felt really good that she'd addressed it because she felt like she was kind of lying to him. It's the elephant in the room yeah. because he knows that you know who he no, is. No, but they don't always know that you know. The great thing about working at a service station, though, is people are often coming and buying Siggies. They're always buying things that are, oh. you know, or a chocolate bar that yeah. they're sneakily getting. They yeah. And they've got a hat pulled a bit, a bit of a hat low over their <laughs> eyes. Exactly. Uh, oh, there's our third text with the Belgrave wizard. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's surely there has to be a wizard in some other suburb. No, I think Belgrave, that's, uh, that's all they need. Uh, thanks for the other texts that came through. We've had someone confirm that they've seen Steve Bowen DJ at uh, many a blue light disco in Albury. So there you go, Jez. There you go. Can I read that? The other person that saw Mr. Rush. Oh, that saw Geoffrey Rush. Yes, yeah. this is great. I saw Mr. Rush not long ago in Canby at the at the TAB. I said, on the punt, Captain Barbosa. <laughs> Just stared at me and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> On the punt, Captain Barbosa. What a great line, that is though. So good. That's awesome. Oh my god. There you go. Uh, there, oh, there's another one that came through too, and someone just said this is an actual cele- a celebrity S. So it said that they served Paul Dempsey at Malvern Central, and when it came time to pay, he had to sign for his credit card. I asked, "Can I check your signature?" That they'd, they'd awkwardly laughed. He's a babe. He's a babe. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> yes, and uh, lots of interest in the Belgrave Wizard as well. <laughs> yeah, no. Now I want to go up to Belgrave. <laughs> Three triple R. We have a new thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. How are we going? Um, excellent. Thank you. And I just realised I we're talking about full moons and I should have checked. I'm highly unobservant. When was the last oh. full moon? I feel like it's today. I can tell you. Oh, is it today? Does that explain your well, I, loopy behaviour? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the actual moon is doing. I'm just saying it's something enough. There's you something going on today. I found, I found reference to um, 19th century England and lawyers used to come up with the defence, not guilty by reason of the full moon. Imagine if you get away with that. Just go into court and say, what was the full moon last night? I'm entirely not responsible for anything I did. We're very far away from one, actually. We've got a super moon, though, uh, happening on the 24th of June. Well, and there you go. On the 9th of June, we've got a micro moon. Oh, no, that's a full moon. Sorry, I'm reading it wrong. Full moon on the 9th of June. We're very close to one. Okay, well, there so go. there you go. So if, we, if it were 19th century England, you could do whatever you wanted and not get in trouble for it because it's all the full moon's fault. Really? Yeah. I like this. I don't actually Friday know night. any lawyer got away with that, but... <coughs> Bring it back, I say. Bring it back, I say. So what's the verdict, guys? Do you believe in the Transylvania effect, whereby the Transylvania effect is people do weird things... With a full moon. I know you're going to oh, yeah. tell me it's not true. This is what I feel like, but I kind of believe no, it. I believe it. Yeah. I'll go with it. Yep. Okay. I, so what happens? When I'm in the country and you, yeah, away from the city and the lights and with all the stars and the full moon is really full, <coughs> it's extraordinary. I mean, I feel like in the city I barely even notice whether it's full or whether it's not. Well, I think that's a really good point. I mean, these days we're barely aware of the moon because we don't see it because the cities that we live in are so bright. I see it very clearly in Cranbrook. Yeah. It's, but also, I have a part, my partner's obsessed with the moon, so like I, I'm always noticed when it's full. Yeah, right. Um, but maybe right if you're right in the middle of the city, Jeff. 
right? I, don't know. I okay. think yeah. that when it's a full moon, it's obviously it's a bit lighter and you don't sleep as well. You're out and about. Crazy things happen. <gasps> Crazy things happen. Mm. Well, let's start with, with the... the <clears throat> The myth, which is this thing called the Transylvania effect, and lots and lots of people believe it. So there's been heaps of surveys done. So something like half of students in a study in the US said, yeah, crazy things happen when there's a full moon. And then when they interviewed um, nurses and doctors in an emergency department, 80% of the nurses said, yeah, it's crazy in here on nights of a full moon. And 64% of the doctors said, yeah, all these crazy things happen. And one group of people even came out to say, yeah, I get much more stressed having to work in the emergency department <clears throat> when there's a full moon and I think we should get paid more. I've actually I've heard this. I've got a friend who's a nurse who said the mm. same thing to me, that, they, that there's more patients and crazy things happen on full moon. It's not true, is it? This is really upsetting <coughs> me. <laughs> It must be a full moon because I can't stop coughing. That's all right. I was just trying to see if I had some water. So what do you reckon the evidence is? Because I can tell you that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies have been done over the last 40 or 50 years looking at whether there's a link between the full moon and strange things happening. What do you reckon? Where do you reckon the evidence lies? Well, I feel like if so many people believe it, it probably has an effect whether it's true or not. Ah. Genius. He is a genius. (laughs) How about we come to that later? So I'm going to tell you all the things that we have very good evidence are not affected in any way by a full moon. And it's quite a long list. I won't go through all of them. But, for example, um, the effectiveness of heart surgery, the likelihood of surgical complications from a whole lot of different surgeries, um, post-operative pain, anything to do with surgeries going badly, no effect of whether it's a full moon. Um, you don't get any more calls to crisis centres when there's a full moon. Um, epileptic seizures aren't more common when there's a full moon. There's no increase in admissions to emergency, de- emergency departments. There's no increase in calls to ambulances. Um, there's no increase in people visiting their doctor to get help with depression and anxiety. There's no increase in suicide attempts or successful suicides. Uh, there's no increase in prison violence. There's no increase in violence in any sort of psychiatric settings. There's no increase in dog bites. There's no increase in murders. There's no increase in traffic accidents. Shall I I keep going? No, no. it's depressing. <clears throat> yeah. So none of those things. We don't have evidence for any of those things changing but, in relation to the moon. But there's a but, isn't there? Uh, well, there's a couple of studies, but... <clears throat> so, yeah, there's a but. Yes. <laughs> but... But those studies, when you look at them closely, turn out to just be really dodgy studies. So I found one study that said, yes, you get more calls to a poison centre for accidental poisonings when there's a full moon, Mm. but it turned out to be a really tiny study. There was another one that found people are more likely to have strokes when there's Mm. a full moon, but again, it didn't turn out to be a very good study. One study said that, um, you know, violence is more common when there's a full moon, but it turned out the study period they were looking at, there just happened to be more full moons on weekends. So, of course, Ah. you know, you get more violence on weekends. But it doesn't stop people believing it. In 2007, an area of the UK, they actually employed more police on nights of the full moon And they released a statement saying, we have evidence, so we carried out research, and this research has shown a correlation between violent incidents and full moons, to the extent that they actually paid to have more coppers out working on nights of the full moon. So people really believe it, but there's no evidence. But where was their evidence? Where was their evidence? Well, yeah. I don't know. They just uh-huh. said in this statement, we've done research and we have evidence. They didn't. I mean, I guess they just looked at how many violent incidents happened and looked at whether, you know, whether it happened on a full moon. Maybe or if you were in a pre-industrial 
society or, you know, away from the big cities, if there's a full moon, people might stay out later. Yeah, yes. might like go to part, you know, might party yeah. and stuff, and you might get more like brawls and. Exactly. Full so I reckon parties. there's three things that can probably explain this myth because, you know, people aren't stupid. Obviously, people have some reason for thinking it. The first is what we call um, illusionary correlation, which is the idea that, you know, you just happen to, to see correlations where you think they might be. So the idea is if you're out on a full moon and you see something crazy happen, you go, oh, something really crazy happened. I saw this brawl down by the pub on the night of the full moon. On the next night when you're out on a full moon and you don't happen to witness a pub brawl, you just don't remember it, right? So you end up with this correlation, this illusion of a correlation that you think it happened. So that's kind of what you were saying before, Jeff. And I think it also plays into this idea of confirmation bias. If you believe in this effect, if you think strange things happen on nights of a full moon, then of course, any time you hear or see anything that that backs up that belief, well, you you know you take it on board and you mm. ignore anything that <laughs> doesn't support your belief um, about the full moon. But what Jeff said before is is. A really good suggestion because the one good piece of evidence we have about the effect of a full moon is that people sleep a little bit less. Even if they're inside um, a room for, you know, a week at a time doing a sleep study and they don't know it's a full moon and they can't see there's a full moon, people sleep less on nights of a full moon. So what does that mean? <clears throat> Something, well, it's fascinating. So maybe our bodies do have some intrinsic, you know, we are tuned mm. into this phase of the mm. moon. I've got a friend who is genuinely believes that their like energy is shifted by the moon. They're not like a hippy dippy person. They just they just feel <laughs> like, like a hippie. No, 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 no. Energy does, but I mean I mean literal energy, not spiritual energy. I mean yeah, yeah. I mean they, they they believe that they have more energy around full moons. Okay, well the the sleep evidence suggests the opposite that yeah, people right. have less deep sleep. They sleep about twenty minutes less. And even studies in kids No, that's not the opposite. Yeah, if you have more energy you're not gonna sleep as well. Oh, I was thinking the opposite that you don't yeah. get enough sleep so you have less energy when oh. you wake up. Because people say they wake up tireder <clears throat> after a night of the full moon. So experts have like researchers have suggested that maybe this is the root of the kind of werewolf crazy myth because if you're already really susceptible to, you know, sleep deprivation affecting you, so people for example who have seizure disorders or people who are bipolar, if you're already really susceptible to not feeling great on less sleep, if every time there's a full moon you reliably get less sleep, then maybe that explains it. Um, this friend is um, when I say energy I mean at night, like they can go yeah, out okay. and you know, but it's probably in their head. Who They're knows? probably getting less sleep because they're out rampaging. Exactly. Think about it. In days gone by when our body clocks weren't ruled by our screens and by our street lights, when there was no electric lighting, a really bright light, you know, a really bright moon might have had a massive effect. You don't sleep as well. You go out, things get crazy. Someone's asked, is it a barometric, barometric pressure shift? Well, see, that's the that's the funny thing because in the early days, people like Aristotle argued that the whole reason the moon might affect us, affect us is because, well, if the moon affects water and makes tides, then surely our because our bodies are so full of water, then the moon would also affect us and have an effect on us just like, you know, the ocean. But there's n- that just doesn't happen. The, the physics of that is not true. We don't have enough water in us for that to have an effect. And just because at times of the month we can see more or less of the moon, that doesn't actually change how much pull the moon has would have on our bodies, right? Yes. Yeah. The moon is always exerting a pressure on the earth. It doesn't change at the time of the full moon. So that isn't true at all. Ah. Um, but just this idea that maybe in days gone by when people couldn't sleep very well because the moon was so bright, 
Maybe they went crazy. We've been getting a lot of calls that we can't answer because we're on air. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there are all these people wanting to argue with you about this. Oh, I'm sure people want to argue. And that's the thing. People believe it. And people usually have some personal good reason for believing something. All I'm here to say is there's no good scientific evidence. Except that you don't sleep, which means it does affect us. Well, we're talking 20 minutes less. I mean, you think about last time you got 20 minutes less than normal. Did you know? Was it an excuse for doing something crazy? I think those final 20 minutes. <laughs> every minute counts. All right, every minute counts. Hey, this is slightly um, different, but I noticed that um, on windy days, mm-hmm. um, I think uh, children go a bit crazy. Just like horses. Mm, interesting. You no research done on that yet? I, I look, I'll have to okay, get back sorry. to you, mate. I'll I thought it might. I just thought I'd bring it because it kind of linked in with the... Yeah, well, people mm. argue that kids get more crazy and hyperactive under a full moon, but that mm. also turns out to not to be true. But they do. A really mm. big study, 6,000 kids on five continents found children sleep on average five minutes less when there's a full moon. Now, whether that five minutes has any actual effect on day-to-day reality, I'm not convinced. But if you're sleeping like five minutes less or 20 minutes less, what's your whole quality of sleep like, though? Yeah, well, they did find that people had got slightly less deep sleep. You know, the period of time mm. you spend in deep sleep was slightly reduced when there was a full moon. Mm. So I think the whole sleep thing is probably where the myth comes from. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of why we continue to believe that all these other crazy things happen when there's a full moon when actually they probably don't. All right, Dr. Jim, we'll let you go. I hope you don't get torn apart by werewolves after this. <laughs> so do I. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll see you in a week's time. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Right now on Breakfasters, it's a big pleasure to welcome back from holidays, Simon Hinckley from Museums Victoria. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, how was the holiday? Did you Holi- see any good bugs there? Uh, I saw some bouquetins in the French Alps, which are the, the goats with the big curved horns that they've <gasps> reintroduced. So that was pretty cool. Oh, like, right. Oh, awesome. um, yeah, and I did see some bugs and stuff, but the, the bouquetins were a bit of a highlight. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Don't tell me you're crossing over into goats and uh, leaving the bugs behind. Uh, look, I, it was tempting to see a sort of a herd <laughs> of uh, goats go across the, uh, the mountains. It was pretty cool, but I, I was trained on the ground. I was looking at little beetles going past and stuff like that. So I think I'm still in, in the bug world. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Which kind of bugs are we talking about today? Well, I thought I'd look at a group of um, amazing beetles with the common name of bombardier beetles. So they're found um, around the world, except for Antarctica, lots of different species. And they're from the family Carabidae, which are a predatory group of beetles. Uh, in Australia, we've only got a couple of uh, species, a handful of species of bombardier beetle. And there's one species that is found in northern Victoria uh, and much of Australia. It's only about one to two centimetres in length. It's uh, black and orange in colour, nocturnal, so you're not likely to see them out in full sun. But let's just say you happen to be a frog or an ant or a spider or some sort of predator and you were to grab this beetle by the back end or put it in your mouth or grab a leg, you're very quickly going to get a face full of 90 to 100 degree boiling chemicals along with a bit of steam and also a popping sound. So the full sort of bells and whistles sensory wow. effect. So How you're right. Does... Sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> How does it do that? 
It's actually incredibly clever. So what it has in the abdomen is uh, two chambers. There's um, a reservoir chamber, which contains um, the chemicals when they're not needed. It has a second chamber that I'm going to call the explosion chamber because if I call it Good reaction man. chamber, mm-hmm. I'll go reaction reservoir and invert them. So reservoir when not needed. When the beetle is threatened, the chemicals move from the reservoir chamber into the explosion chamber where there's some enzymes present. These then cause the chemicals to react, which generates... Uh, heat, which heats the liquid to boiling point. They lose a bit in evaporation, but then they also, the pressure then causes that to squirt out. Some of the species can direct the spray. So you might be a frog going, well, I won't come from behind. I'll come from underneath or I'll come from the side. Some of them can direct it within about a 270 degree range. So wherever you come from, you're still going to get that face full of burning chemicals. And they have done um, some scientific experiments. to me, it didn't appear rocket science, but yes, frogs will learn fairly quickly. Don't grab bombardier beetles at all. And if you're a smaller thing like an ant, it's quite possible that you'll be killed in the um, in the experience. Not many things get covered in boiling chemicals and come out looking good. What does so, the chemical What does the chemical do to say a frog? It's just really distasteful. So if you're a larger oh. predator, like a, a praying mantis or a frog, you'll survive. But it's like I don't know us eating something really incredibly disgusting and getting burnt at the same time. But if you're a smaller predator, the the effect of getting covered in hundred degree chemicals is often enough to kill you. So it's an incredibly effective defence mechanism and things do learn pretty quickly not to, you know, nothing's really adapted to going, I'm up for a face of burning chemicals. So oh. they're, they're pretty um, pretty amazing little well, defenders. So where does it squirt out from? It's got some glands down near the rear end. So the oh. tempting thing is to say... Out its bum. Exactly, But yes. it's not its bum, just near its bum. It's near its bum, yeah. Huh? And what about if you picked it up? <laughs> would, it, would it hurt a person? I guess you would have to put it, see, we're talking about beetles that are a couple of centimetres in size, so you'd need to go, I'm going to have a look really close at the back end of I'll this beetle. Right it's, in my yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> so if you did happen to be unlucky enough to do that, possibly, and, you know, look, I guess it would really hurt. And the, the chemicals that the beetles use, um, a number of insects have as a defence, but these have been able to superheat it and direct it and fire it at speed. So they've really sort of upped the, the chemical S- weapons, S- if you like. Superman beetle. Pretty much. Yeah. What, what's what? the popping sound? The popping sound is the chemicals actually exploding out of the beetle. Right, it is so, an explosion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow, like a cannon. So there's a, and there's no other beetles that have been able to do this, be able to develop this to this point? There's a number... So there's probably a couple hundred different species of what we commonly call bombardier beetles, and they're called bombardier beetles for this ability to, like, literally sort of fire weapons at, at attackers. So that's hence the, the sort of the war connotation of the bombardier beetle. So there are uh, many different species around the world that have sort of uh, arrived at this uh, ability to defend themselves. And what was interesting was um, I guess scientists have wondered for a while uh, how do they not overheat? Like if you're producing up to 100 degrees inside the yeah, body, how do you do that themselves. without burning yourself out and killing yourself? And they've used some technology that takes 2,000 frames a second of the beetle alive and firing. And what they found is with the two chambers, the pressure in the explosion chamber causes it to expand, which closes the valve to the reservoir chamber. So the chemicals stop flowing in, the pressure forces the chemicals out, reduces the pressure, the valve reopens. So it's this open, shut, open, shut thing. That's happening between three and 700 times a second, depending on the species. But that tiny break in the chemical reaction stops that heat continually building, if you like. So just that, apparently, that micro stop in the reaction is enough to stop the beetle overheating. And what I did think was interesting was that research was part funded by the US Department of Defence. Not that there's anything wrong with that. 
and some fantastic inventions have come from military research, but I thought, you know, is the future... Bombardier. Bombardier. Bombardier yeah. Beatles. <laughs> if anyone's seen Starship Troopers, maybe that's the future. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so amazing technology, and it's shown that um, it just has this amazing ability to incredibly rapidly turn it on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off to stop overheating. Would did they ever do this to one another? Because I imagine if they were crawling on each other or whatever, maybe they could accidentally explode. <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> um, apparently a lot of the species are communal, so they will actually, you will find groups them together. So they do have the ability to go, oh, you're one of me, I'm not going to waste time and energy blowing chemicals in your face. Ah. So they do have the ability to go, you're one of me, as opposed to I'm in a frog's mouth or this spider's grabbed my leg or that sort of thing. So they do have the ability to decide when to turn it on and off. What about during mating? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I knew someone. That's what I was getting at, but I didn't want to ask it. Thanks for being a creep, Jess. I'll ask it. When they mate, after they've finished, do they... Yeah, do they... (laughs) Just the female <laughs> shoot chemical at the thing near her bum and kill them. I'm pretty sure that she doesn't, but the fact that the species is still with us, I think it means that they're probably not doing that. Um, well, I'm done with you. <laughs> hey, it happens. That's praying mantis. Yes. Well, exactly. Well, that's yeah. what I was insinuating. No, look, it's it's. Um, I wish it was true. I, I don't think it is. Yeah. 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 It's good to know. Yes. Yeah. Happy for the male species. <laughs> um, you said before that then the Australian ones are nocturnal. If listeners did want to see one, what would be the best way to find one of these things and not get exploded by? Yeah. Look, if you do a search for um, Bombardier Beetle Australian Museum, there's a, the Australian Museum have got a, a um, an info sheet on the species that's most widespread in Australia and you get an image of it and that sort of thing. It's mostly found, um, I think, on floodplains and rivers and that sort of thing. So, And being only one to two centimetres, you're probably not likely to easily find them. Um, but, yeah, look, have a look, and actually there's some great videos online. You know, if you want to see David Attenborough talk you through a bombardier beetle, you know, burning someone's face or some, oh. some thing's face, um, <laughs> there's lots of videos out there. And what was actually interesting also in, in looking... Um, looking into the bombardier beetles was it's actually been latched onto as a poster species by the creationists or people into intelligent design. So you've got the scientific community that goes evolution is the way to go. I would say there's probably an outlier, but I'd say 99.9% of scientists go evolution is the way to go. And then you've got um, the creationist community or intelligent design community who say, no, 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 um, evolution doesn't explain it. Someone has... Because it's so complicated. Exactly. And they've gone bombardier beetle... I'm not buying it. So they've gone, how do you how did, how evolve, did that evolve noxious boiling chemicals inside another being made that? Now, I love the idea of um, someone somewhere going, you know what, today I'm going to make a beetle and what can I do? I'm going to make it, give it the ability to boil chemicals and fire it at 270 right. degrees. If God is sitting there and he <laughs> yeah. was like, just to be bored, today I'm yeah. going to make all my fun creatures. Exactly. Bombardier so, beetle. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea. But having read their arguments, the only thing I could agree with was um, one of them suggested that, thank God, they're small. And I thought, yeah, that's true. Because yeah. imagine if bombardier beetles were the size of dogs or something like that <laughs> and you upset one. But um, so it was interesting. taking care of you. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> Treat me nicely, you say, yeah. Um, but no, it was interesting to find that they have really seriously latched onto this in a big way as wow. proof of their, no, no, um, someone made this because this is just too complex and too freaky to have evolved naturally. Not something I agree with, but, you know, everyone's entitled to their maybe, opinion. Maybe Satan made it. That I really... That I'm he failed. Get, it came out small instead of gigantic. I'm going to get on some websites and suggest maybe that's uh, from Satan, yeah. All right, just before you go, you said the Australian one is very small. Are there bigger ones? There are some different size ones around the world, but as far as I know, they don't get too big. Um, 
we're probably talking a matter of centimetres, um, probably not more than, a, uh, you know, maybe an inch, or, an inch or two. So not not the sort of thing that you can go out and easily spot like a koala or something like that, um, but certainly lots, because they're so spectacular, lots of good stuff online if you do want to sort of see um, how it works. And yeah. talking about good stuff, you've got an exhibition coming up? Yes, I have. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Um, it's called uh, Bug Lab, Little Bugs, Superpowers. And this is actually coincidental. I didn't set this up, but one of the, the – it's a collaboration between Tapapa and in New Zealand and the, the Weta Workshop in New Zealand, which is Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings costume. So there won't be orcs there, but there will be um, six different zones looking at insects, and one of them is the exoskeleton and looking at the bombardier beetle. So I guess the ability to not be – burnt by having these chemicals inside your body. So that will be coming up at the museum on June... I think it's June, June 23rd. Check our website because there'll be uh, admission fees, but you can sort of link it up with the IMAX film on bugs and also the Bugs Alive exhibition in the museum. Oh, oh sweet. full bug experience. Yes. Thank you so much, Simon Hinckley from Museums Victoria. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. You're a triple R. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. 